Today we are going to do chapter 3 of the book of Galatians. God doesn't have grandchildren. Let's see why God doesn't have, does not have grandchildren. If you are new to church, just new at reading your Bible, it won't take long for you to come across the word testament. You will hear it maybe the first time you go to church or you open your Bible, just see the Old and New Testament. The Bible is divided into two parts. Have you ever wondered what was the purpose of that division? Who made that decision? Why are they even called testament? And what does testament mean? In fact, testament is an old English. Uh, it's an old English word that means covenant or agreement between two parties or more. The Old and New Testament can also be called Old and New Agreement or Old and New Covenant. Old and New Agreement. The two parts of the Bible are not normally testament in the modern sense of the word. If you think of a testament, if I think of a testament, I, I'm thinking of the last will of a person. That's the meaning of it today. We think, we, we, we think of testament as a will that somebody writes before they die. In our modern English, that's the meaning of a testament. But in the old English, testament had the meaning of a covenant. So we can call them new and old covenant instead of new and old wills. Just a, a small twist there to, to bring it into context. Testament speaks of an agreement, a contract, a covenant. The covenant that God did with his people are called testament, but they are not really testament. They are agreement. It's a contract. Before Jesus came to the earth, <coughs> there was only one group of sacred writings. There was no Old Testament. They did not speak in the language of, uh, let's open the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2, it was not so. When Jesus uh, came, it was just the sacred writings. Let's just open the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, not the Old Testament. After it was recognized that Jesus had given further writings to humanity, further revelations to, to us, Believers began to distinguish between the two groups of sacred writings. We started to realize that there is a difference between the language that was used or the agreement that God entered with people in the past and the agreement that now we are hearing from Jesus and from Jesus to the apostles. It was a completely different agreement. And that's when the word testament, old and new, came from. That's where the concept of, of old and new came from. Old Testament and New Testament. That raises the question. If God gave a covenant to his people before, and Jesus came to give a new covenant, what is the meaning of a covenant? If God came to give us a new covenant, if Jesus came to give us a covenant, why is covenant even important? Why should we be talking about covenant today? In our modern society, we don't use covenant often. We use contract or agreement. So nobody says, 
I got a job and I'm going to make a covenant with my boss today. We don't say that. Tomorrow we are celebrating our covenant anniversary. We don't say that. We don't think of marriage as a covenant. Do you? And maybe now you can start thinking about it. But honestly, we don't think about covenant when we think about marriage. We think of an agreement. We agree to be together as long as it's working. It's not really a covenant. It's an agreement. In our modern mind, there is no concept of covenant. In the modern mind, I may agree with you in the morning, and by 12 I change my mind, and it's okay. People change, we evolve, that's what we say. In their time, you make a covenant, you are bound to it. In our time, you make a contract, you sign a contract, and they give you 14 days to think about it. After signing, you sign first, and then they tell you, you have 14 days to change your mind. And then you go, you think, you think. After 13 days and 23 hours, you remember, ah, no, I don't want this anymore. You change your mind. You break it. At the modern mind. But when God was making covenant with humanity in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was, the definition of covenant was not like that. You couldn't change your mind. You couldn't change your mind. It was sealed. It was sealed. Covenant has no more values. It's, 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 it's meaningless today to sign a contract. Some people may even say that marriage is just a piece of paper. I, I just want to make clear, and I love what my wife told me one day. There is a post that she put on, she put on our Facebook page. M marriage, if marriage was just a piece of paper, so is money, but you still wake up in the morning every day to work for money. So work on your marriage. To understand the Bible, you also need to pay attention to the historical and cultural context of the passage. If you understand the historical context of the covenant, you will understand what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians chapter 3. You will understand why covenant is so much of a big deal. If you understand the context of the word covenant. Galatians 3, chapter, 15, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 to 18. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. You don't change it. Once it's signed, it's signed. And if you change the terms of a contract, it's nullified. We agree on that. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it's no longer from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise, the idea of covenant. God made a covenant 430 years before Moses. He signed a contract, an agreement with Abraham. Nothing changed by the law of Moses. The covenant with Abraham still stands. 
In terms of Abraham, every covenant required blood. To make a covenant, the parties involved took several animals. So before you sign a contract, I'm buying your land and you are giving me your land or you're exchanging stuff, you, bring, you have to bring animals before you sign that contract. Then you kill those animals and cut them into pieces. And then you put those animals side by side, side by side, and make a way in between the pieces of animals. And then the parties that are making the covenant will walk in between the pieces of animal while declaring their side of the covenant. I'm selling my, my land today to Mike, and I'm not going to ask it back again. Then you pass. I'm giving my land for free to Mike. Please do make that covenant. I'm giving to Mike my land today, and I'm not going to ask it back again. You are welcome. <laughs> you pass through the two animals, the, the pieces of animals. The reason why they did that, it's because the, the meaning of the, 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 the animals was, if I change my mind and I do anything different from what I am saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's the meaning. So if I change my mind, may my body be cut into pieces like these animals. That's how serious a covenant was. So if you're about to get married, now let's bring it to marriage now. You cut pieces of animals. I'm being married to Christelle. And if I change my mind, may my body be cut into pieces. And then Christelle comes. I'm being married to Mike. And if my... That was a covenant. Oh, you see? The modern mind. <laughs> the modern mind, we don't really understand the concepts where things were operating in the Old Testament and New Testament. But that was the case at that time. That's where came the word to cut a deal. We don't cut a deal. We, they say we cut a deal because they were cutting animals when they are making a deal. Usually covenants were bilateral. It was between two people. God made a, numbers, a number of, uh, of, of covenants in the Old Testament. I, I'm, I'm try, I will try not to use very um, religious uh, word so that you can understand, so that the modern mind can understand. But there are some covenants recorded in the Bible. One of them is the covenant with Adam and Eve. God said, as long as you obey me, you will live in paradise. So I will care for you. I will be for you. I will give you paradise as long as you obey. That was bilateral. Two parties were involved in that covenant. When Adam and Eve broke their part of the covenant, sin, suffering, and evil entered into the world. Why? Because they broke their part of the covenant. Another covenant was the God covenant with Moses. The Old Testament de derives its name, Old Testament, from this old covenant that God made agreement with Moses. It was also bilateral. As long as you obey the law, I will bless you. Two parties. You do what I ask you to do, and I will do my part. You earn my blessings by obeying the law. 
we have a covenant with David. God promised David that one of his descendants will build a house for the Lord and rule forever as king over the nation of Israel. In fact, Solomon, the son of David, ruled over uh, Israel. There is a twist. He did not rule forever. Another part of that covenant was one of the descendants of David, who is Jesus Christ, will reign forever. Let's now go to the covenant with Abraham that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. God made the covenant with Abraham in a different way. Most covenants, as we said, involve the commitment of minimum of two people, two parties. However, God's covenant with Abraham was unilateral. It was not bilateral. It was one-sided covenant. Only one side promised their responsibility in the covenant. Abraham never declared his side of the covenant. Abraham never said what he will do for God to do what he promised. But God said what he's promising to Abraham. Which means that Abraham could not violate the covenant. He never passed through the animals. He never promised anything. God just promised stuff and that was it. That means Abraham could not break the covenant. No matter what he did. Are you with me? We will read the Bible, you will see it. There is no place where Abraham promised something. But God promised stuff to him. That means the covenant was one-sided. It was unilateral. That begins to draw your attention now. Why Paul is using Abraham as an example. It was not conditioned by anything Abraham might do or not do. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 to 12. Just bear with me. It's a story, so you need to understand what I'm talking about. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring, your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Each three years old, watch this, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all this to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. What is happening? Preparation of a covenant. The birds, however, he did not cut into, in, in half. 
Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. No, that's very good of you, Abraham. As the sun was setting, so that was happening during the day, now in the night, Abraham fell into deep sleep. Abraham slept. Again, he can't make any declaration while asleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. That's the night. 17. When the sun had set and darkness has fallen, now in the night, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Not Abraham. A smoking God's presence came and passed between the pieces of animals to do what? Cut a deal. God physically showed Abraham he was making a covenant with him. Abraham saw it. He saw it. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the Wadi to Egypt to the greater river, the Euphrates, and all the promises continued. So the question is, why could God make Abraham sleep, but Abraham could still see the deal, the covenant God was making? You know why? God did not want Abraham to say anything or to do anything while he's making the covenant. Naturally, when someone tells you, I will do this and this and this and this and this for you, the natural instinct is to respond. Oh, yes, I will also do this and I will also do this. So God knew, if I let Abraham walk or talk, he will make another covenant. He will agree with me and he will say things. What I want him to do is just to believe what I am telling him. Abraham saw God's presence walking through the animals, the pieces of animals, making a covenant, but could not talk, could not walk. Stay with me. That's the secret. That's why Paul is using that story. He knew there was nothing Abraham needed to do to earn the fulfillment of this covenant. And the Pharisees were saying, we are the children of Abraham. Because of what we do, God's covenant was unilateral. That only God was responsible for. And Abraham and his descendants could do nothing about it. Abraham only believed God. Whatever God said, Abraham believed it. And his belief was counted as righteousness in the eyes of God. Some people think God blessed Abraham because he was ready to give away his son. We all think like that, don't we? We think, ah, oh, Abraham gave up his son. That's really painful. That's why God saw the pain and blessed him. We are wrong when we think like that. The Bible never said that. The Bible even tells us why God blessed Abraham. And we miss that. Abraham was ready to give up his son because he believed God. And it is his belief that was rewarded, not his action. His faith in God, he accepted what God said. And what he believed 
affected his actions. So God was not paying attention to the action. He was paying attention to the heart. As long as you believe God, it will inform your actions. God did not reward the action. He rewarded the faith. We only think of, our God really saw the pain? No, God did not care about the pain. He was looking for the belief, and he found it in Abraham. Will he find it in you? So, in the book of Galatians, to the Galatians, Paul is responding to the Jews who came to the Galatia people, to the Galatians, claiming to be the children of Abraham by DNA. They continue to demand that anyone who needs to have a relationship with God should comply to the lifestyle of the Jews because Israel was the true children of Abraham. They claim that they were naturally children of Abraham by default. They considered themselves as God's natural grandchildren. We are coming from Abraham. We are God's grandchildren. We are born grandchildren. The Jews were claiming that becoming a child of, of Abraham, one needed to follow all the law that was given to the children of Israel. Remember, by the time of, of Abraham, the nation of Israel or the people of Israel did not exist. They claimed to be naturally, by default, children of Abraham, grandchildren of God. The covenant made to Moses was conditionally. It was safety, prosperity, and all the blessings of God against or versus obedience. It was bilateral, conditional covenant. So Paul is telling them this. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through me. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Paul is telling them, you cannot become a child of God by being a natural child of Abraham. It's only when you believe like Abraham did that you can become a child of God. And they were claiming, oh, we are naturally children of God. It's like thinking, because my parents are, are Christians, I'm born Christian. It's, it's like thinking like that. That's why we are not born Christians. You will have parents who served God and they did things for God. You are born a sinner, my friend. You have to believe in God by yourself. You cannot be born a Christian. You have to be born again Christian. Your parents can be sinners. And you will be a child of God. Because you will make the decision for yourself. Every individual has to purposely choose to believe in Jesus to become a child of God. And that the, the, the thing Paul is telling them. This is not a matter of being born naturally from Abraham. Guys, you've got it wrong. I will just emphasize on I'll just remind you of something. Somebody else's faith can heal you. But somebody else's faith cannot save you. We see in the Bible, friends brought a guy and broke the ceiling and dropped the guy inside. Their faith healed him. 
not his faith. The Bible doesn't say that. This is the, the, the Bible is clear it was their faith. They believed God. So somebody's faith can heal you, but somebody's faith cannot save you. You have to believe for yourself. So there are many blessings covered under the covenant of Abraham. But let's talk about one most important blessing that Paul is arguing for, that is really stressing they understand the gift of righteousness. There are so many other. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. That's great. I will give you the land. That's great. But one of the blessings, one of the terms of the covenant of Abraham, when God was walking through the, anim the pieces of animals to cut the deal with Abraham, was this. Your faith, your faith, your faith, your faith gives you righteousness. Righteousness is the right stand with God. God is 100% pure, 100% holy, 100% mistakeless, 100% 100% righteous. God. He's 100% righteous. So, to get close to God, you have to be 100% per perfect. Not 99.99999% No, you cannot be even one zero 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 point one impure before God. Let's, let's count righteousness to be like an ocean full of water. If you just take a sin as small as one grain, like one small piece of sugar and throw it in the ocean, that ocean becomes dirty in the eyes of God. That's how Holy God is. Heaven is pure. Heaven is holy. There can't be even a dot of sin in heaven. And if God tolerates it, it means heaven becomes compromised. He cannot. You can't talk to God with sin. You cannot get close to him with sin. God cannot look at you with sin. There is no relationship between you and God with even a dot of sin. And when I say a dot, it's just something you think in your mind. Just a small mistake. You see how <laughs> serious God is? God. People have tried the best they can to reach righteousness, to be holy. They do good things to try to earn, to balance that the good will outweigh the bad. We have some religions that tell people, on a particular day of the week, do as much good as you can. Give to the poor, serve, do this and do that, so that your bad that you have done during the week can be at least balanced with the good that you are doing. That will never earn righteousness before God. It doesn't matter how best you try during the day to do good. You will think something wrong. You will say something wrong. And that disqualifies you before God. That's why the law was given. To highlight that we can't. We can't please God. It's just impossible to be pure or to be righteous. Because God is looking for 100%. Not 70. I know people like me. We are 12% pure. Like people like uh, Larissa, 95. You know, you see some people like, yeah? No, no, I can see some two. <laughs> two percent, no. <laughs> two percent, no. Larissa is the good example to follow. 
The problem with that is it doesn't matter if you are righteous 2% or 5 or 20 or, or, or 99. You are all sinners in the eyes of God. Okay, you've got it. Because God cannot lower his standard to come to our place, to our level, and there is no way he will accept anything unholy before him. So God did something for us. God did something for us. He sent Jesus to come and live a holy life. God, Jesus, was 100% God to live a perfect life and 100% human to die for imperfect humans. Have you ever asked yourself, why Jesus? I will tell, give you the answer. Because he was God and human at the same time. There is no human being who could have died for us because every human is imperfect. Even Moses could not. Even Abraham could not. They were all imperfect. Jesus was 100% holy. When Jesus died, in place of Mike, in place of Michael Harris, in the place of Larissa, the 95% holy in the room, all of us, Jesus said, if you only believe in me, you receive the gift of righteousness, which means in the eyes of God, you will be seen as 100% holy. That's the gift of righteousness that was given to Abraham. In the eyes of God, you are seen as if you've never sinned before. You are 100% holy. So your 2, 3, 18 doesn't matter anymore. What matters is your faith in Jesus. And Paul is arguing, only those who believe in what Jesus has done are the true inheritance, the true heirs of that covenant with Abraham. Faith in Jesus gives you access to that covenant. Not being born naturally from Abraham. It begins to make sense. Why Paul brought that argument here? Because he was telling the same, the very people who claim to be holy for being just naturally children of Abraham. The gift of righteousness makes us pure 100%. Just by believing in Jesus. He says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. The law was given to Israel. Grace was given to all nations. But remember. The new covenant came to confirm the covenant of Abraham. That means the, cov the new covenant was also unilateral. It was a one-sided covenant. There is nothing you can do to inherit the new covenant. Nothing. God does not require you to do anything to earn that gift of righteousness through Jesus. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Full stop. You become a child of God, not a grandchild of God. Just by believing in Jesus. We became personally children of God when we believed in Jesus under the new covenant, the new commitment of God to us. Believing in Jesus is not only accepting historical evidences about him, but finding yourself in his story. When we say if you believe in your heart, 
and you confess with your mouth, we are not saying you agree with Christians that Jesus is true. It doesn't mean you agree with me. It means you find yourself in that story. Where do I fit here? What does Jesus mean to me as a person? Not to Christians, as a collective. To me as a person. Why, where do I fit in this story? When you discover where you fit in that story, you become a Christian. You are saved by faith. Not when you agree that Jesus lived one day. Many people believe that he lived. Many historians, even non-Christian historians, even Romans uh, uh, reports, they report that Jesus was real, was a human being who lived 2,000 years ago. It's true that people believe Jesus lived. Believing that Jesus is real does not save you, does not give you righteousness. It's when you find yourself in that story. Where do I fit here? What about Jesus that concerns me, that affects me? Then you understand the gift of righteousness. And this is what it means. You understand that Jesus came to earth even if you were the only person alive. He could have still come. When you understand that Jesus died on the cross for you, even if you were the only person on earth, Jesus could have still come for you to save you. When you understand that your efforts cannot save you, but what Jesus did was all for you as an individual, you find yourself in the story. When you begin to believe that all the Bible was written so that you can be found, you are saved. You become 100% righteous before God. You become 100% holy in God's presence. You become 100% a child of God. The covenant is for you. You only need to trust what Jesus has done and not what you can or cannot do. The covenant is for you. Maybe you have been told that you are not good enough. Maybe you have been told that you failed so many times. You tried and tried and tried. You have miserably failed over and over in your attempt to be a good Christian. The covenant is for you.